Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, August 2020. Today we'll be discussing how to improve your documentation to curb denials, common dermatology procedures. My name is Dr. Brad Glick, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist and clinical professor of dermatology at the Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine in Miami, Florida. Our expert today who's joining us is Dr. Molly Moy, who is a board-certified dermatologist and a fellowship-trained Mohs Micrographic skin cancer surgeon. She has completed intensive training in skin cancer surgery and advanced facial reconstruction. Her professional areas of interest are skin cancer detection, treatment, and Mohs micrographic surgery. So Dr. Moy, thank you so much for joining us today. We have a lot to cover, so let's jump into it right away. Let's start with the basics. Through the optics of payers, for instance, what are the basic criteria required for approval of dermatologic procedures? There are three main criteria that must be met for dermatologic procedures to be covered by a payer. They're as follows. One, the service must be medically reasonable and necessary. Two, the payer and plan coverage criteria must have been met. And three, the medical record documentation meets and supports the level of service provided. When all three criteria have been met, your documentation, your medical record, stands as the legal document of record that can withstand all claims audits that may be initiated. As the provider of service, you have to ensure that the medical record describes the medical necessity for the encounter, whether it be procedures or evaluation and management services, So in short, your medical record documentation is acutely important to avoid inadvertent claim denials and audits. Now, most, if not all payers, have specific guidance on what is expected to be included in the medical record. This information is readily available from Medicare and private payers. And for Medicare, it's through the national and local coverage determinations. For private payers, it's through their coverage and benefit policies, and we'll discuss some of these more. So today we're really gonna focus just on the policies that affect dermatology services and how to incorporate payer guidance to effectively achieve audit-proof documentation. In most circumstances, if your documentation meets Medicare requirements, it will meet or exceed the requirements for private payers. So it's really best to kind of have your documentation standards set at what Medicare requires. It sounds like detail is very important and we'll get into that a lot more, I'm sure. So let's move on and talk about pitfalls. So what are the pitfalls? And ultimately thinking of pitfalls, Dr. Moy, the best practices that we can use to avoid denials of such dermatologic procedures. In general, it's what we just touched on. You should avoid maintaining different documentation standards based on payer requirements. Just use the most restrictive payer guidelines. Use that as your benchmark for other payers. For consistency, our discussion will focus on Medicare coverage because Medicare has more consistent policies unlike those from private payers. 
If you are interested in knowing certain private payer coverage policies, you tend to have to contact them directly or visit their websites. I think it may be helpful if we briefly explain MACs, NCDs, and LCDs at this point, because that's kind of what we're going to go into next. So Medicare has a total of three national coverage determinations. These are shortened to NCDs that are relevant to dermatology. And those are for hair analysis, treatment of psoriasis, and treatment of actinic keratoses. To briefly sum these up, hair analysis as a diagnostic procedure is not covered by Medicare. So you cannot send hair off to have mineral testing to determine if someone's deficient. That's not covered. Regarding psoriasis and actinic keratosis, Medicare will cover essentially conventional treatments. But apart from those three NCDs, there are lots of local coverage determinations or LCDs. To find relevant LCDs for your practice, you first must identify your local Medicare Administrative Contractor, or MAC, and then from there, review the LCDs that they have established. And what an LCD is, it's essentially a coding and billing article published by the MAC that specifies the documentation and billing requirements for coverage of a particular service. If you want to find your local MAC, you can go to cms.gov and you search by region for your Medicare administrative contractor. Alternatively, you can Google CMS Medicare coverage database and you'll be taken to the same page. Dr. Moy, does the Academy have, like in their practice management um, center, so to speak, uh, ability to kind of get some of the information that you're presenting and discussing with us today? in terms of the academy, do they have that? So the academy has lots of helpful information on the practice management portion of the website. Now, whether they're going to have a specific local like LCD policy is going to be different. These can change, they do change and are amended frequently. So keeping up with them can be a little bit tricky. I'm not sure that the AAD has it to that detail. But yes, Understood. in general, the AAD is on top of what's required. They're very helpful. And I'm in Florida. Is it by state, the LCDs? Is it more regional or state? It tends to be a bit more regional. Understood. Okay. Very, very helpful. Thank you so much. What are the common procedures impacted most frequently by payer denials? The procedures most commonly affected by denials are probably those related to destruction of or removal of benign lesions. In these instances, denials are typically because the medical necessity of the procedure has not been documented or because perhaps a treatment has been performed for a diagnosis that is not covered under the LCD. Examples of procedures that are not covered by Medicare include the removal of asymptomatic or benign lesions, removal of asymptomatic seborrheic keratoses, asymptomatic cysts, and asymptomatic skin tags. So we can go into some of the LCDs and discuss some specific examples. What can be a bit puzzling and, and frustrating when you get a denial is that not every procedure has an associated LCD. So for some procedures, we're just not going to find much guidance. 
But some of the most common LCDs that are published by Max are those for Mohs micrographic surgery, removal of benign lesions, removal of malignant lesions, debridement and wound care, and then there are LCDs for things like special stains in immunohistochemistry, skin substitutes, incision and drainage, and then allergy testing. And for each of these procedures, as well as others, the LCD does specify what's required for the procedure to be covered. So it's interesting for me here in Florida, and a lot of my colleagues in other states will say, well, a seborrheic keratosis that is irritated and it's inflamed and it's red, I can remove that, I can destroy that, I can bill for that. For me, I don't even go there because we get denials, even when we carefully, truly document an inflamed, clinically relevant, irritated, inflamed, whatever we like to call it, seborrheic keratosis. Is that something that you've experienced yourself? Is it just me here in Florida where sometimes it's a little bit more challenging? So in regards to truly inflamed, symptomatic, irritated seborrheic keratoses, those should be covered per the LCD. Now, one potential pitfall that documentation could overcome is ensuring that you are using the ICD-10 code for inflamed seborrheic keratosis, which is the L82.0, rather than the code for a regular old seborrheic keratosis. So that's one potential pitfall, but other, other than that, I can't say what's going on in Florida. Poor Florida. So what about micrographic surgery? Any particular pitfalls there? Are there some special pointers uh, that you have for those that are listening that are micrographic surgeons so that we don't get into trouble in terms of getting coverage for what is a very complex procedure? I would say the one difficulty that can some, we sometimes run across in getting Mohs covered is for the rarer diagnoses, let's say an atypical fibrosanthoma, a microcystic adnexal carcinoma, for which there is not a specified ICD-10 code, you have to make sure that whichever code you choose to bill that under is covered under your LCD, or you will get a denial. And they'll say, we don't cover most for that diagnosis. So that there's a ton we could get into in skin substitutes, really fancy repairs. But in terms of Mohs surgery, that would be um, just a big pointer is making sure that you use a correct diagnosis. The pointer there from my optics, and I'm not a micrographic surgeon, is just simply that there are some important nuances. And those are more rare diagnoses. And I think our payers are not particularly used to those particular diagnoses other than basal cell or squamous cell for micrographic surgery. So how do I avoid unnecessary payer denials? Can you discuss guardrails and really more important, the best practices? Sure. To avoid unnecessary claim denials, first, you have to ensure that the service meets the payer criteria of reasonable and necessary. Your documentation needs to be complete, yet succinct in describing the details of the encounter and service rendered. One common pitfall is that most of our dermatology procedures are specific to an anatomic location. So it's very important that you document the anatomic location and choose both the CPT and ICD-10 diagnosis code that defines the condition and the procedure to the highest specificity. 
For example, all of the basal cell carcinoma codes are all site-specific. Now, for like the benign nevus codes, the D22.9, that's an unspecified location. It's basically saying some other unspecified place on the body, but we're dermatologists. We can give a defined place on the body, and when you can do that, that's what we need to do. So why don't we talk about some specific dermatology documentation? So let's do skin biopsies first, because that's the most frequent procedure that we perform. Sometimes if skin biopsies are not documented correctly, our procedure to obtain a tissue sample can be bundled into a more extensive procedure that's performed in that same encounter. So your documentation needs to indicate that the decision to obtain the tissue sample was made independently and is not related to that main procedure performed. For skin biopsies, your documentation, it actually has to include quite a bit. It needs to include the intent of the procedure for a biopsy, that is to obtain a tissue sample for histopathologic exam, the characteristics of the lesion, which also need to include the site on the body and the size of the lesion, the depth of tissue removed, so meaning you know epidermal, dermal, subcutaneous, and then the technique, so a shave, punch, or incisional. Additionally, supportive documentation should include the type and volume of anesthesia, the type of hemostatic technique, so did you do chemical cautery, did you electrodesiccate, etc., if there's any blood loss, any applicable closure. And note that simple closures are included, so you do not need to build those separately. And then if you're if the lesion you've removed is classified as uncertain, meaning our neoplasm of uncertain behavior code, there should be some documentation supporting what's uncertain about it? You know, are you concerned that it's a basal cell, a melanoma, what have you? When it comes to removal and destruction of benign or malignant lesions, again, there's a bit of of documentation we need. We need to know the morphology of the lesion, whether it is benign, pre-malignant, or malignant. Again, the anatomic location and how long it's been present. Describing the lesion characteristics within the history and physical exam is important. Again, including the size, appearance, symptoms, or recurrent trauma. So that's important when it comes to those seborrheic keratoses we were talking about. And that all helps define the medical necessity for treatment, which is especially important for benign lesions. And then in terms of the method you use to remove or destroy it, that needs to be described. So are you using a laser? Are you doing cryotherapy? Um, Are you curating it off? And why you feel that's going to yield the most effective outcome? For these procedures, again, type and amount of local anesthesia. When you do an excision, you do need to document the width and final excised diameter as well as the depth of the excision, so it should be full thickness, and then the number and type of specimens that you removed comes in handy when you're sending it for biopsy and pathology so that you have a record of what you have sent. Now, except for Mohs surgery, specific indications are not typically required as a distinct element of the record, but if it's not listed in your procedure report, it's very important to include the indications for what you did in the patient's chart somewhere. So those are the main things. Now for excision, so when you're doing you know, true surgical excision, again, we need to include hemostasis, 
estimated blood loss, and then a description of the closure. When you are doing a surgery, it's important to state that post-operative care and follow-up were discussed, and if there are any complications, that should be discussed as well. You know, it's interesting for someone who's been in practice 25 years like me, so I'm getting a little bit older, I do recall the time before the advent of EMR of writing things down. And while in the beginning of electronic health record timeframe, I kind of complained a little bit in listening to you describe what we need to document, I must say that most of what's in my EMR when I do even a simple shave excisional biopsy is really helpful for us. Uh, because I would often write local anesthesia provided after sterile preparation shave biopsy, next. And I think that we're provided with a greater detail of documentation to make it a little bit easier because we do do this every time. There's a lot of repeat performance in our work in dermatology. So kudos to the EMR to some degree. (laughs) Yeah, the templated documentation for procedures does make it much easier to include all of these elements. I would say the main pitfall is if staff who are inputting the data are just not doing that completely or are leaving out certain things. In our practice, the main thing we have to educate providers on is to include the size because that is required. But um, yeah. So speaking of electronic health records, um, you know, the majority of dermatologists, I think, are now finally using EMR in general, and we were just discussing these templated documentation for procedures. Do you use this in micrographic surgery? Are you using an EMR as one example? And is it helpful for you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And again, I think for anything procedural, having templated documentation does does make everything um, much easier. Now, a, a potential pitfall, again, going back to some of these like, benign diagnoses is you really sometimes can't template the medical necessity of removing a benign lesion. So those are going to be the things that need to come out in your history and physical exam. If a nevus is itchy, bleeding, rubbing on clothing, that's not something that a checkbox and then a templated EMR can get. So those are the kinds of things that you're going to have to check in your documentation to ensure it's been included. Now for Mohs surgery, There are a bit more documentation requirements that are specific to Mohs. Again, you do need to include the diagnosis or the type of lesion, the location and size, and you do have to include a description of the complexity of the procedures. This must include the number of stages, the number of specimens and tissue blocks, mapping techniques, and then any special or immunohistochemical stains used as well as the pathologic findings for each stage. And that's something that I think catches a lot of people by surprise, but you do have to document the histopathologic description of the tumor that you see under the microscope. And this should include the depth of invasion. And if there is presence of perineural invasion or scar, that should be noted as well. And so that's all true for stage one. On subsequent stages, if that is similar to that and to what is seen in stage one, you don't have to go through that same description again. You can say it's similar to stage one. And then obviously when there's no tumor present, then it's clear. Another thing worth mentioning about Mohs surgery 
So you have to say why Moses indicated. At this time, you do not have to document the appropriate use criteria or AUC score, but indications do need to be included, and those can be tumor characteristics such as a high-risk site, aggressive histology, recurrence, poor definition, large size, or it can be high-risk characteristics of the patient, such as an immune-suppressed patient or a surgical site that's within a previous burn scar or previously irradiated skin. This all sounds like a lot, but if we go back to our templated EMR, oftentimes it is more of just a, a checkbox, so that makes it much easier. Additional supportive documentation must include a statement that the physician acted as both the surgeon and the pathologist during the procedure, because that is the definition of Mohs surgery. And if the physician is not acting as both, you cannot bill Mohs surgery. Previous biopsy findings when applicable should be included. And then the same thing that we discussed for other procedures in terms of type and volume of anesthesia, hemostatic techniques, blood loss your repair, and then follow-up instructions and complication management. In terms of repairs, that's hoping a whole can of worms that we may need to go into at another date. But it is important to document any comorbidities that might complicate patient care, such as diabetes and smoking, and those conversations you had with the patient that just may put them at increased risk. Um, so these are the documentation requirements that are expected by Medicare to receive reimbursement. And when they're missing, the service may be denied as not meeting their necessary documentation criteria. For people who are just a bit overwhelmed by this, CMS has released a Medicare Learning Network Bulletin. It is number SE1318. It's called Guidance to Reduce Mohs Surgery Reimbursement Issues. It's a very good resource that outlines all of these documentation criteria or requirements, and it's only about four pages. So it's something you can just keep on your desk as a reference for when you come into these situations that you need to know for certain what needs to be documented. So let's talk a little bit and go in a different direction, talk just very briefly about some other areas where denials may be of a challenge for us and where particular documentation is important, like patch testing. So perhaps tell us a little bit about patch testing. For patch testing, you have to document the number of tests and then the type of antigens applied, as well as the results of the patch testing. And one key about patch testing is just to remember that the removal of the patches and then the subsequent providing result is all part of the initial testing and is not separately reportable. So it's all coded together for patch testing. What about photodynamic therapy? Now, as a micrographic surgeon and a skin cancer specialist, do you do a fair amount of photodynamic therapy? And if so, tell us about documentation for PDT. I do some PDT. And the PDT billing has changed a bit in the last couple years, such that there is some new documentation that is required to ensure that, that you are um, going to meet documentation criteria. You have to document, obviously, the photosensitizing drug that is applied, the amount used, and the anatomic location you are treating. The new requirements are you really need to ensure that you document the staff member who's involved in the PDT delivery 
and clarify these roles. Is it a physician? Is it a nurse practitioner, physician assistant? Or is it a medical assistant or a nurse? So the new codes are if the physician, nurse practitioner, or PA is directly involved in the PDT delivery, you report either code 96573, or if there is lesion debridement beforehand, 96574. And then if you are debriding, you need to document how you debride. My understanding is that some EMRs have not updated to have this as part of their template. And so that is making it difficult for people to be reimbursed correctly for PDT is because they're not able to say who was involved. Those are the main things with photodynamic therapy. Phenomenal. What about laser treatments as it relates to similar care that we provide our patients for like actinic keratosis or for other conditions like psoriasis? Absolutely. So those are good questions. For any kind of light-based therapy, you've got to document the type of light applied. So is it UV? Is it more sore lens? Is it broad or narrow beam? Are there any light enhancing topical agents being applied or any shielding to protect certain parts of the body? You should also include the areas of the body being treated and of course the condition you are treating as well as the severity of the skin condition. Each laser treatment session should include the session time as well as the strength and any post-procedure recommendations and then the patient's condition, whether there were any complications and follow-up instructions and what their scheduled therapy is. For UVB type therapies, so for psoriasis, as you mentioned, or eczema, there should be a discussion, at least at first, of the baseline skin color and any prior treatment history. And including the extent and distribution on the body is helpful so that it is understood what's being treated. This is an area in my practice, we do a lot of uh, eczema laser and just another example where the electronic health worker really provides a lot of the bulleted points that help with the documentation, much of what you mentioned. Exactly. And so if we want to talk about laser treatment, like such as eczema for or eczema laser for inflammatory skin diseases, again, you have to include the size and the area you're treating, the severity of plaque type psoriasis, the duration these plaques have been present, the dosage of light you're giving, the surface area treated. And then it's important to also include the device you're using. And for Medicare, it must be an FDA-approved device for the treatment of psoriasis. And that actually goes back to that NCD we were talking about earlier, that Medicare will cover standard psoriasis treatment. So one thing that we didn't talk about, and that is photography. Now, as a micrographic surgeon, you do a lot of photography. What is the role of photography in documenting and coding and and how helpful is it where denials are concerns or at least for obtaining approval, how important is it? So I can't say that I have a ton of experience having to send off photographs to get something approved, but I do think photographs are really an essential part of your medical record at this point and with how easily integrated photographs are with most EMRs, there's really no reason not to take photographs, especially prior to 
uh, biopsies, excisions, Mohs procedures. Um, but I, I can also see that for the more inflammatory conditions, it can be helpful, especially if you're going to do laser treatment for psoriasis, you know, documenting severity at first and then improvement over time. So while there is no stated requirement for photography, I think it's incredibly helpful. Applicable to that is, for example, I do a lot of psoriasis treatment. And even for the approval of biologic therapies, when we're having to send patient records to be able to document the severity, more than just demonstrating an investigator's global assessment or body surface area for the payer to see the clinical photos, of course, HIPAA compliant and with the patient protections is quite helpful. And I think that's kind of a good analogy and example of something very firm in in terms of providing information towards ultimate approval. I completely agree. Yes, for getting medications approved, a picture often speaks a thousand words in terms of everything you can say about how bad something is, just sending a picture that can do the trick sometimes. Well, Dr. Moore, you set forth a robust agenda, and I actually think that we got through it, all of it, and this was really a wonderful opportunity to not only meet you today, but also to learn a lot about how we can avoid denials for dermatology procedures. So I thank you for the opportunity to interview you today, and I've really enjoyed our time on Dialogues in Dermatology. So till next time. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.